Matthew chapter 3. Today we will, Lord willing, finish the chapter number 3. The title of today's message is The King's Coronation. King's Coronation. Remember last time we looked at the first several verses of this chapter. And it's been about 30 years that have passed from Matthew chapter 2 to Matthew chapter 3. About 30 years. And during that time, where's Jesus been? Jesus has been, most of the time, remember, living in the town of Nazareth, uh, apparently working as a carpenter because his earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter, probably taught him the trade. But now the time has come for Jesus to begin his public ministry. That was, by the way, that was pretty typical with priests in Israel. They often didn't begin their their ministry as a priest till around the age of 30. And so Jesus is now around the age of 30, and it's time for him to begin his public ministry. But if you try to put yourself in the sandals of Matthew's readers, because uh, and that's what I want you to do now, try to put yourself in their sandals, because Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jews, trying to, and he's, his whole purpose in the book of Matthew is to show that Jesus is king, to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And they've waited a long time. Many people were wondering, you know, is he going to come? Is he here? Uh, of course, some had been saying that Jesus was the one. But there was this big question that was hanging over Jesus. Was he still qualified to be king? Was he still qualified to be king? I mean, he, he had this uh, amazing birth. It was a humble birth. But, you know, the Bible says he was born of a virgin. And there was all kinds of interesting things going around, you know, the time of Jesus' birth, the star, the magi coming, and we, we, we've seen his genealogy in chapter 1. But a lot of people were wondering, is he still qualified to be king? What happened during those 30 years in Nazareth? Had anything taken place that would disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah? Because he had to be perfect. He had to be uh, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. So Matthew is assembling here in chapter 3 and and even going on in chapter 4, testimonies of some very important witnesses. These are witnesses that are testifying to the person of Jesus Christ that he deserves to be the Messiah. He has not disqualified himself during those 30 years in Nazareth. And we we started the process of looking at the testimonies. You remember the first testimony is is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first testimony. He's the forerunner of the Messiah, pointing to Jesus that that he is Messiah. He is the one who is greater. And so these witnesses are clearly showing that Jesus is the Son of God and the King or the Messiah. Now, who are these witnesses? And I already mentioned John the Baptist. We've partly talked about him. We're going to talk a little bit more about him today. But there's some other witnesses that are are popping up in this passage as well. John the Baptist was the first. The second is the Holy Spirit. And the third witness is God the Father. So let's let's look at these witnesses and, and see how they point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the King of Kings or the Messiah. But 
we don't want to lose sight of the context here, so let's back up and cover some verses we've already talked about. Go back to verse 1, Matthew 3, verse 1. Let's, let's get ourselves back in the context of the passage here. Matthew 3, verse 1 says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan or fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that's where we ended last week with verse 12. And now we come into verse 13, and we see that the passage is continuing with the testimony of John the Baptist, who is, of course, pointing to the Messiah as being Jesus. So let's look at uh, John as he as he we see in this passage. He's going to baptize Jesus, okay? That's what it's about, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to John at the Jordan, to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That ends chapter 3. So following John's message, the anticipation surely must have been very high for the arrival of the Messiah. After all, he was the forerunner. He's pointing to to the Messiah. But up to the the point of of, uh, his baptism here, the Messiah had not been identified yet. And now Jesus is kind of suddenly appears on the scene here, and he is laying claim to the identity of Messiah. Now think with me for a moment. Jesus was an unlikely 
Messiah figure, wasn't he? Where was he born? <laughs> He's born in the feeding trough of animals in a, in a little, you know, insignificant place called Bethlehem by fairly insignificant parents. John has, as we think about this, we ask the question, well, why is he considered this unlikely figure? Well, for one thing, John has has uh, has really be, built Jesus up in a way. John's prepared us for this powerful figure coming with the might of the Holy Spirit and, and judgment of fire, as it says. So you, you picture someone who's strong, powerful, amazing. And so we might have expected the Messiah to arrive in, in Jerusalem, perhaps, or maybe reclaim the throne of David and, and to enter into the temple of Solomon. But we don't see any of that here, do we? That's not how Jesus did it. Instead, Matthew simply says, then Jesus arrived. <laughs> Jesus arrived from Galilee. That's all he says. It's, it's not outstanding at all, is it? It's just a, a solitary figure, Jesus, arriving from, an, by the way, an insignificant place, Nazareth in Galilee which is just an agricultural region. And here he comes. There's no fanfare, no blowing of trumpets. He doesn't have a huge entourage coming with him. He doesn't have lots of gold, silver, and rubies, and diamonds, and, and no, no camels, donkeys, mules, not, none of this stuff. It's just him, all by himself, dressed in plain old normal clothes, looking like a, a normal Jewish man. And he shows up to be baptized just like everyone else. No fanfare. <laughs> None of that. Perhaps the most unlikely figure, of, uh, feature, I should say, of the story is that Jesus comes along and he asks John the Baptist to baptize him, just like everybody else in the crowd. And John, as you can see in the passage here, even John himself seems a bit surprised by this since he tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. In fact, he, he says, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you, he said. Uh, now, there's no way I should be doing this. Now, why did the Messiah want to be baptized by his forerunner? You ever thought about that? Why did Jesus, who, of course, had no sin, he didn't come and confess his sins, he didn't need to be saved, why is he coming and getting baptized by a sinful man? Well, one theory is that Jesus thought he also needed conversion and purification. Of course, that, that's wrong. You know, that, uh, he didn't need to be purified. He didn't need to be converted because Jesus is God. He's perfect. And so John immediately dispels that possibility because John said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And so only when Jesus says, let it be so now, does John actually consent here to, to um, uh, baptize Jesus. And he said, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Well, when you read that, I hope you're asking yourself the question, uh, why did Jesus say that? What does Jesus mean that his baptism is going to fulfill all righteousness? You ever wondered that? What does he mean by that? 
how can his baptize, how can his baptism fulfill all righteousness? Well, let me give you what I think are a couple of good answers. Number one, this one comes from a pastor. Here's what he said. I quote, it's on the screen. In my opinion, that's this pastor's opinion, the best way to understand Jesus' words is by understanding what I see as the primary significance of baptism, which is the idea of identification. In Christian baptism, we are identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection so that his death becomes our death and his resurrection our resurrection. In Jesus' baptism by John, Jesus identified himself with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect Savior and substitute for us. End quote. So there's that identification of Jesus' baptism. He's identifying himself with us in our humanity so that he could become the perfect sacrifice. Remember, God had to become a man and dwell amongst us to become the the sacrifice and the substitute. Well, here's answer number two that's kind of along the same line, and this one's coming from a commentator. I quote from this commentator. He says this, Most likely Jesus means this in a salvation historical sense. God's saving activity prophesied throughout the Old Testament is now being fulfilled with the inauguration of Jesus' ministry culminating his death in his death on the cross. Perhaps Jesus has in mind the righteousness of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, which says this, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus will accomplish God's will in the sense of God's saving activity. Jesus is expressing his obedience to God's plan of salvation that has been revealed in the Scriptures. Of course, the servant that's mentioned in the book of Isaiah is referring to Jesus Christ. And in fact, Matthew's even going to quote from chapter 42 in just a moment here. Now imagine this scene with me for a moment, okay? The setting is, of course, the Jordan River, which is in the country of Israel. John the Baptist has declared openly and very firmly his expectations about the powerful Messiah. The people have put their hope in the coming of God's kingdom. And now the one recognized by John to embody those particular dreams simply goes into the waters of the Jordan River and he's baptized like all the other people who were there. Doesn't that seem a bit anticlimactic to you? It certainly does to me. And in a way, it even seems paradoxical, a bit ironic. But out of that very unassuming scene comes a very dramatic performance by God. And we see that God actually presents Jesus here for his messianic mission. It's God the Father who is presenting Jesus to the crowd and to the world. And so in this amazing event, there's actually a threefold revelation that I want to point you to that's in our text here. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus sees the heavens open. Number two, 
he sees the Spirit of God descend as a dove on him. And then number, number three we're going to look at, he, he actually hears God's voice acknowledge that Jesus is his beloved son. So let's take a look at each one of these three revelations and, and hopefully um, see the importance of these three revelations. Now, the first one that's revealed here for us is as Jesus comes up out of the water of the, the Jordan River there, the Bible says that the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, if you look at uh, all of Scripture, every time it talks about the heavens being opened, it's, it's quite significant. This is something big is about to happen. Now, what's going on here? Well, in, in, in the Greek, it's actually in the passive. And, and passively, I believe it's, it's, it's pointing to God Himself as the speaker here in, in a passive sort of way. So I think it's God Himself. He is the one who is actually opening up the communication gates of heaven, if you will, and he's about ready to reveal some very important truth to the world. Okay? That's why I, I, I think that's the significance here. And we're about to see what is this important truth that is to be revealed to the world. What's the second revelation? Number two, we see that Jesus saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove, and it actually, the Bible says it came to rest on him. Now, I want you to notice the word like in your Bible. Hopefully your Bible has the word like. It should. But what's the significance of that? Because here's the significance. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. <laughs> okay? That shouldn't be any new revelation to you. And that's why the Bible is using the word like. Because the, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. That's why he's called spirit. You can't see a spirit. And even in the book of John... The Bible talks about you can see the effects of wind, right? This, you don't see the Spirit in John chapter 3, but you see the effects of wind, right? I mean, it can even knock over trees, blow the roof off your house, do all these kind of things, right? You don't see the Spirit. but, it, it, but So the Bible has to describe Him like something. And in this case, it chose a dove. So we got this visible manifestation of the Spirit going on here. Now, what's the point? <laughs> Why is the Bible doing this? Well, in the Bible, the dove expresses characteristics of gentleness and peace. It's expressing gentleness and peace. And often people who, who, uh, who, who worship world peace or these sort of things, what do they do? These people often go and release white doves, don't they? Now, why did the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? Well, there's at least two reasons. At least two reasons you need to remember why the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Well, number one, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus in his humanness. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus in his humanness. Remember, Jesus is not only deity, he's also human. He took upon himself the form of man. So yes, Jesus is fully God, and He's fully God in every way. In His deity, of course, He needs absolutely nothing. God doesn't need anything, or else He wouldn't be God. But remember, He's also fully man. So in His humanity, 
he, um, he was here being anointed for service and he's granted strength for ministry. So the human side of Jesus needed the Holy Spirit just like you and I need to be filled with the Spirit to perform God's work of ministry. So he was empowered in his humanness. Number two, the descent of the Spirit refers to the anointing of the Messiah. Messiah needed to be anointed to, to be ready for his, his ministry. So Jesus' anointing by the Spirit is, you need to think of it kind of like the coronation. What, what, what often happened in a coronation? Well, in, in, in Bible times, for example, when King David was anointed to be king, they literally would put oil on his head. They often did that to kings. They would pour the oil. It was an anointing. It was, it was kind of like a blessing, preparing them for their work. And so we see the Spirit is, is the one coming upon Jesus here. This is the coronation of Israel's Messiah and the commissioning of God's servant for the work that he's about ready to carry out. And so, by the way, this is not suggesting here that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. Well, at least for the first time. Okay, Please don't think of, this is the first time the Holy Spirit's come upon Jesus? No, that's not what this is saying. And in fact, it, you remember, it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who impregnated Mary. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered Mary to be able to give birth to Jesus in the first place. So um, it was at least at that point, if not before then. So what's happening here? We have the descent of the Spirit in this formal anointing for the purpose of what? It's inaugurating Jesus' public ministry. This is when His public ministry started. In other words, what I'm saying is this. This is the visible sign that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. It's pointing to this one who is very ordinary in appearance, who is very ordinary in his birth, very ordinary in many ways, his, his parents and, and, and all these ways, pointing to the one who is who may look and appear to be ordinary, but in reality he is the great one, the expected one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who that John has been preparing the way for. Do you understand? Jesus needed these testimonies and Matthew is pointing and showing these testimonies that, yes, we've been waiting for the Messiah, and guess what? He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Well, there's a third revelation in this passage. There's this voice here that's coming out of heaven. And it has a dual pronouncement, okay? This voice gives a dual pronouncement of the identity and the nature of Jesus, and it does it through two different passages here. It's, it's going to do it through Psalm chapter 2, which is a kind of a messianic psalm, but it also does it through Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Well, let's take a look at uh, each one of these passages individually. The, the statement in, our, in Matthew chapter 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, is a reference going back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which I'll show you on the screen here. And it's dealing with the image of the Father and the Son. Look at the image of the Father and Son on the screen here. Psalm 2, verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten 
you. Matthew's quoting Psalm chapter 2, this messianic psalm. What's the point? Why, why is Matthew quoting from Psalm 2? Well, the, well, remember, the title Son of God had very clear messianic uh, significance even prior to Jesus' ministry. But more important here is the relationship that is declared between Jesus and this voice that's coming from heaven. There's a relationship. What is that relationship? Jesus is the Son. And God the Father is, of course, this voice, and He is the Father. So the Father is saying something about His Son. So Jesus is the Son, the voice is God the Father, and what's at the heart of this relationship? At the heart of the relationship, as we see in Matthew 3 and and even in Psalm 2, is, is love. The heart of the relationship is love. God the Father loves His Son, and the Son loves His Father. And so we can thank God that He loves His Son. Otherwise, you and I would have absolutely no hope. If God the Father did not love His Son, and the Son didn't love His Father, you'd have no hope. So that's at the heart of this statement here in Matthew 3 where God the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, there's another thing we need to think about in in this statement. The, The statement there, with whom I am well pleased, it's taking our understanding of Jesus' mission one step further and it's drawing on Isaiah chapter 42 for another significant figure there. What is the significant figure of Isaiah 42? It's the capital S servant. Capital S servant. In case you don't remember what verse 1 says, it's on the screen here for you. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations course that passage is referring to jesus christ it always has but what's the point why why is matthew drawing from isaiah 42 verse 1 well in the statement by the father jesus is heralded as the servant who by the way is enabled by the holy spirit to bring justice to the nations how does justice come to the nations through jesus by the power of the holy spirit So here in the words of God Himself, we literally have verification of the essential message of Christianity itself. You say, well, what is the message of Christianity? Well, it's really quite simple, lest you've missed the whole point. Here's the message of Christianity summed up for us here. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus, who is the Messiah, had a specific work and a specific mission in coming to earth. And in fact, Matthew stated it in chapter 1, verse 21. In case you don't remember that. What was the purpose of His coming? His work was to save His people from their sins. That was the whole purpose in His coming. To save His people from their sins. So so the, the, the core essential message of Christianity is... 
Jesus is God's Son, the Messiah, who is perfect, came and dwelt among us, lived the perfect life that you should have lived, died the death that you should have died, was your substitute, paid the penalty for your sin so that you can have righteousness to get to heaven to spend eternity with God because He's the only one who can save you from your sin. Now, did you notice the Trinity in this passage? Now, sometimes people can kind of gloss over this and and miss the doctrine of the Trinity here. The doctrine of the Trinity is right there for you. You say, well, what, what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Well, I like Wayne Grudem's definition. Here's what he said. Uh, you, you can define the, the doctrine of the Trinity as follows, quote, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God, end quote. Now, in one sense, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery to us, isn't it? If any of you fully understand the Trinity, please come and talk to me because I want to know, all right? I'd really like to know because th- this is a hard one. How do, you, how do three become one? How are three one? But yet they're fully distinct. That, that, that really is a mystery, isn't it? And <clears throat> by the way, you're never going to fully understand that. Probably not even in heaven will you fully understand that one. However, there are some things about this particular doctrine of the Trinity you can understand. And, and Wayne Gruden points out three important aspects. All right? We can understand, number one, that God is three persons. Well, to our finite human mind, that doesn't make sense. We can nevertheless still believe it. And you should believe it, because the Bible says it. God is three persons. They're distinct. Okay, God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father. Okay, They're, they're not like you know, mixed all together. They're distinct persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Okay, Jesus is not lesser than the Father. The Holy Spirit's not lesser than Jesus Christ. They're fully God. Each one of them have all aspects of God, all the characteristics, all the essence. And number three, there's only one God. There's not three gods. You don't worship three gods. You should never worship more than one God. The Bible makes that quite clear. So they're one in essence. They're one in being. And we see that doctrine here. Okay, We see one God, but we see all three persons. Right? Did you notice that? Of course, Jesus, that God's Son, that's pretty obvious. The Holy Spirit taking on this physical manifestation of the dove in some way. And of course, God the Father, you hear Him speaking, you hear His voice speaking from heaven. So there's three distinct persons, but one God. Are are you all with me, class? Nod your head yes, so thank you, class. All right, good. All right, so we see the doctrine of the Trinity. And by the way, this isn't the first time Matthew's going to point this out. In fact, he's going to end the entire book of Matthew, again, mentioning the Trinity in chapter 28. And if the rapture doesn't happen first, we will eventually get there. Now, what do we learn from these two Old Testament passages? We mentioned Isaiah 42 in Psalm 2, but what, what do we learn about that? You say, oh, you know, that, that's interesting, Pastor Scott, but what's the point? Well, these passages are pointing two distinct emphases of Jesus' identity and his mission. Number one, Jesus is both the divine son and the suffering servant. He's both at the same time. 
in case you didn't get that, let me repeat it. He's the divine son of God, but he's also the suffering servant, and he has to be both. That's significant. God had to become a man. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 3, who was crushed by his father, who took your place, because you deserve to die on the cross. You understand that, don't you? You deserve to die on the cross because the wages of sin is death. You deserve that punishment. But because Jesus took your place, you're not going to get what you deserve. So the divine son and the suffering servant are one. So the father has, has given his beloved son this mission of this servant that was prophesied hundreds of years before. And Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. He's going to bring salvation, not just to Israel, but as it says, he's going to bring salvation to the nations. That's plural. Nations, plural. And number two, what else do we learn here? Well, through the anointing by the Spirit, the Father formally inaugurates Jesus into his public ministry as the unique Son. He is the unique Son, but this Son is the King. Now, that, that might seem a bit strange to you. How can the Son be King? Well, He is. But not only is He the Son and the King, He's also the humble servant. He's all three of those, and He's certainly more. And what is He doing? He's accomplishing His Father's will. He came to accomplish His Father's will. He's going to come to Israel, but He's coming not to just bring hope and salvation to Israel, but hope to all nations. So those are just a few things we can learn from Isaiah chapter 42 and Psalm 2. Now last week we looked at some implications from Matthew chapter 3. And I want to look at uh, one more and, and we'll end with this, okay? What are, what are, what's an implication that we can draw from this passage, okay? I suppose there's more than one that we could come up with, but this, this is the one I want to just sit and park on for a moment here, okay? And here it is, it's on the screen, that we must take God's calling on our lives with deadly seriousness, but we must not be proud, instead be humble. We see two people in, the, in this passage here at the end of Matthew 3 who had a calling upon their lives. And by the way, if you're wondering who I'm referring to, I'm referring to John the Baptist and Jesus. Two men who had God's calling upon their lives, they were fulfilling God's will in their lives and through their lives, and they were deadly serious about that calling. They were willing to die for that calling. But yet, at the same time, we see two men who were not proud. Instead, they were both humble. Now, I want to illuminate you a little bit and expand on this, okay? And so, to make sure that we're all in the same boat and thinking together with this, we need to, first of all, understand, well, what is pride? What is the sin of pride? And by the way, don't sit there and think of other people. You need to sit there and think of you, me, okay? Because we all have the sin of pride. It is the mother pride, if you will. It was the one, the pride in the beginning that caused Lucifer to become Satan, and it was... Pride that caused Adam and Eve to sin against God. It is what causes us to rebel against God and worship ourselves. So you say, well, what is pride? Well, I've, here's a few good definitions. One author put it this way. 
Pride consists in attributing to ourselves and demanding for ourselves the honor, privileges, prerogatives, rights, and power that are due to God alone. Thus, it is the very root and essence of sin because pride at its core is idolatry of self. A proud person has put himself or herself in God's place. End quote. Isn't that what Lucifer did? Read Isaiah chapter 14. Lucifer had an eye problem. And I don't mean the eyeballs. I meant he was proud. He said, I will, I will, I will, I think five times if I remember correctly. What caused Adam and Eve to sin? It was the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. One of the three sins, right? It's the pride of life. Hey, I will be like God, Satan says. You take of that fruit and you will be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. So it was pride that causes us to fall into sin. So that's pride. Well, what is humility? Well, one author said it this way, quote, Humility consists in an attitude wherein we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God and attribute to Him the supreme honor, praise, prerogatives, rights, privileges, worship, devotion, authority, submission, and obedience that He alone deserves. It also involves a natural habitual tendency to think and behave in a manner that appropriately expresses this attitude. In other words, the attitude of humility is always seen in humble actions. It means having a servant's mindset and always putting self last. End quote. Another author says it this way, quote, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, end quote. Those are good definitions. Hopefully that's food for thought for you. What is this, you say, um, okay, it's, it's great to be talking about pride and humility, but some might look at this text here in Matthew 3 and say, well, where are you getting this from? Are you stretching things? No, I'm not stretching things. I'm not pulling the rabbit out of the hat here. The implications coming from the text. The implication is surfacing from observing two characters. The two main characters, of course, John the Baptist and Jesus. What are they doing? They're fulfilling their calling, God's will for their life. So let's first think about John for a moment. Even though he had a large following and he demonstrated authority, how did he demonstrate his authority? Well, he rebuked the religious leaders, did he not? The religious leaders come and he calls them a brood of vipers. You need to repent and, and, and show fruit of repentance in your life. But John didn't get carried away with his own importance. He knew he was important, but he didn't get carried away with it. <laughs> he understood clearly what his role was. He understood that he's just the forerunner. He knew that there was one coming after him who was greater, and he knew that his job was to point to the one who was greater. And so he didn't, it didn't bother John that he was being surpassed by one that was greater. Why didn't it bother him? Because John was humble. Now when you're proud, does it bother you when someone else gets more attention, more money, 
more wealth, more praise, more honor? Does it bother you when that happens? When you're proud? Of course it does. Somebody at work gets the promotion that you thought you were going to get? Our pride swells up within us. You know, if you're if you're at school and you're you're trying hard to get an award at school for for some class or something, and uh, you you you're hoping to get it and somebody else gets it, and that that person is just you know you know that person right? That that that's what happens at school. You know that person. That person does doesn't deserve the, that award, but they get the award. And what does our pride do? Our pride swells up within us. <laughs> Ugh. Or, or sports, you know, we play sports and we, we want some praise, we want some attention. You know, we're the ones, we want to make the final three-point shot in basketball to win the game, or we want to be the one to, to kick the goal or the one to score the try so we can get the attention. But we don't. Somebody else gets it. And that really bothers us, doesn't it? Our pride swells up within us. Those are just some examples of what pride does in us. John wasn't that way. John understood his place. He didn't get too carried away. He points to the one who's greater, and he willingly steps aside and lets the one who is greater take the attention, the honor, and the praise. He shows that he was humble and not proud. Well, number two, of course, Jesus was humble. He couldn't be proud or else he wouldn't be God. So how was he humble? Well, even though he was the great one, even though he's the Messiah, even though he is King of kings and Lord of lords, even though he is the divine Son of God, what did Jesus do? Jesus did what he didn't have to do. Number one, he submitted himself to his Father, took upon himself the form of man, born in a lowly manger, submitted himself to sinful parents, allowed him, allowed his parents to change his nappy, and tell him what to do for those 30 years. And then he comes along and lets another sinful man baptize him in a dirty, muddy river. Do you get the point? Jesus submitted himself to the waters of baptism here by a sinful man by the name of John. And apparently it didn't even bother him. Why? Because Jesus was humble. And so there's a tremendous lesson here on self-understanding as we try to carry out God's calling in our life. And by the way, every single one of you have a calling on your life. God has given you a calling. Now, your calling is not going to be the same as John's. Your calling is not going to be the same as Jesus. Your calling is not going to be the same as mine or the person sitting next to you. God has an individual calling for every single one of you. You need to pray and find out what it is and do it. But you need to understand as you are trying to carry out that calling, that God has given you, you're not to be proud in that calling. You're to be humble. And neither John nor Jesus got carried away with their appearances, did they? Of course not. They didn't get carried away. They demonstrated strength as they carried out their roles. By the way, some people think humility is, uh, is, is being a doormat. You know what I mean? You know, letting everybody step on you. That's not humility. Okay. John demonstrated humility in rebuking the religious leaders, but he also demonstrated humility in stepping aside to let the greater one receive praise and honor. By the way, there's also something called false humility. Are you aware of what false humility is? 
False humility is, would be like John. Okay, let's, let's picture Jesus coming for the waters of baptism, right? False humility would say, oh no, you're greater than me. You need to baptize me. You know, some people are falsely humble. That, that, they can be falsely humble. In reality, they want the honor and the attention. They want people to say, oh no, you're great. You're good. You deserve some honor and attention. And, and so people purposely act like they're humble to get some attention and honor. But John's not doing that. He's not being falsely humble. About the key, the, the key word here, of course, is humility. Sadly, this word doesn't get much good press in our day, does it? Humility isn't, uh, isn't something you're taught in school. Humility is often not taught in our families and certainly not demonstrated in our governments. But it is by Jesus and John. What do we hear a lot about today, though? We hear a lot about our rights, don't we? You know, stand up for your rights. If you don't stand up for your rights, nobody's going to stand up for your rights. Everybody's going to walk all over you. You'll never get that raise. You'll never get any honor and attention. We don't like to give up our, our appearances of importance, though, do we? We don't like to give up our rights. We love our rights, and we want to push our rights beyond even what they probably should be a lot of times. But John and Jesus are giving us a very powerful example of humility here. The, the best way to accomplish God's calling in your life is to live knowing God's purposes, but while you're living accomplishing God's purposes, don't allow your self-promotion to get in the way. John's, if John was self-promoting, he would have got in the way of the one who was greater, wouldn't he? If Jesus was self-promoting, he would have got in the way. Uh, and by the way, Jesus even pointed to John. He said, there's nobody greater than John. So again, we see Jesus pointing to others, giving attention to others. And Jesus throughout his life is giving glory to his Father. He's pointing to God the Father. So don't allow your self-promotion to get in the way. And so between John and Jesus, which one makes you the most uncomfortable? I don't know about you, but for, for me, I'll give you my, my, what, my thinking on this one. Jesus makes me the most uncomfortable here. And he often does, and, and he should. I mean, how hard was it for him to appear humbly here at the Jordan River to be baptized by a sinful, name, uh, sinful man? Do you think Jesus wrestled with ordinary things like pride, self-image, appearances, or even his role. Do you think Jesus struggled with those sort of things? I actually think Jesus did. Okay, now hold, hear me out, lest you think I'm a heretic here. Okay, hold, hold, hang on, put your seatbelt on. Okay, continue to listen. I think Jesus actually, in in a way, struggled because we need to, lest we forget. Yes, he is God. Of course, he's God. He is full deity, but he's also human. He's fully human. He has all the same emotions you and I experience, same same human weaknesses. He can experience pain and suffering and, and, and hunger and thirst and getting tired. And so all the things that you and I struggle with, he experienced. And you're saying, where is that found in the Bible? How do you know that? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 makes it quite clear. All right? Let me show you here. Hebrews 4 says this. Since then, we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that verse there because it says, Jesus, who is the great high priest, can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses because he himself experienced them, but yet without sin. So because Jesus has experienced all the same things that you and I struggle with, you know what that makes him? Not, not only does that make him God, but it, it not only does it make him the perfect high priest, not only does it make him the lamb, it also makes him the perfect example for us too, doesn't it? He's our example, the ultimate example. He not only accomplished salvation for us, but he also gave us the model of what a real human life looks like. You want to know what a real human life looks like? Read the Gospels. That's what real humanity should look like. He lived life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled His mission in life. He obeyed the Father down to every little, little nitty-gritty detail. So I end with these questions for you today. Do you love Jesus? You say, well, that's a silly question. Do I love Jesus? I sing, I sing that song every week, right? Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, you say, I love that song. I love Jesus. Really? Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. <laughs> so you need to evaluate your love for Jesus based upon are you obeying God's commands? Well, are you well pleased with Jesus? Are you well pleased with Jesus? That's another question you need to think about. Are you well pleased with Jesus? God the Father certainly is well pleased with Jesus, isn't he? Because he says so here. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So are you well pleased with Jesus? My friend, please understand something. If you are not well pleased with Jesus, then guess what? You're not a Christian. Hear me out. If you are not well pleased with Jesus, you are not a Christian. You are far from Jesus. And Jesus will say to you one day, as he said, as he says in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you are pleased with Jesus, then surely you're going to want to follow him in faithful obedience. And what else are you going to do? You're going to do what Jesus did. You're going to do what John did. And you're going to point to, point to others. I, I, sorry, let me rephrase it. You're going to point these people to Jesus. That is one of those commands. Are you pointing others to Jesus? Does your life point to Jesus, as John's did? You say, well, no, I fail. And you know what? We all fail, okay? We all fail. There, there, there are every one of us, every week of our life, there are areas in our life that are not pointing to Jesus. There are times when we don't love Jesus. There are times when 
we are not pleased with him. We love something more than we love Jesus. God the Father is not pleased when we sin against him, when we rebel against him. But you know what you do? You do as Proverbs says, the just man falls seven times, but he gets back up. And you do what 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my friend, what do you do? Do what John said, what Jesus said, repent. You confess your sins, you forsake your sins, you move on, and you, you, you press toward the goal for the high calling in Christ Jesus. So we all fail, but my friend, good news, God is gracious. He gives us what we do not deserve. May we trust the one who is gracious. May we love this Jesus. Let's pray.